Hi, I'm Jillian York. And I'm Konstantinos Komaitis. And if you heard a dog bark, we've got a guest this morning. That's Yanni. And this is the Internet of Humans. Um, today, we're happy to welcome two guests, both of whom I call friends, to the show, uh, Mahsa Alimardani and Nima Fatemi. Masa is an internet researcher looking at the intersection of technology and human rights, particularly in Iran. She works at Article 19. She's also a PhD student at the Oxford Internet Institute and has written for Global Voices and Slate, among other publications. And Nima is an activist and security researcher, as well as the founding director of Kandu, a nonprofit organization dedicated to empowering civil society and vulnerable populations through educational and information security services. Marsha, Nima, welcome. Today, it's great to have you. Today, we're going to be discussing one of the most human slash internet stories going on right now, the ongoing protest movement in Iran. The current protest kicked off following the death of Masa Amini, following her arrest by Iran's morality police for not wearing hijab in accordance with government standards and have reached really intense proportions in the past weeks, which I'm sure all of our listeners are aware of. Um, you know, it, we've seen incredible bravery considering the government's willingness to crack down on protests and individual offenders, and the world's witnessing these protests as we have before, but maybe in a new way across social media, despite the degree of censorship um, enacted by the Iranian government. Uh, so, Masa, we'll start with you. You've been on top of these issues for a really long time. Um, maybe just tell us what's uh, what's different about this movement, both on the ground and maybe digitally as well. Yeah, so I guess um, saying I've been on top of it, it's been, I guess, over four, almost five weeks now that it's this, these issues have consumed my, my, my life. Um, but... I mean, it's so hard to describe, and I'm sure Nima feels this way as well, to like work on an issue, but also feel so personally about an issue. Um, But uh, what what does seem to be very different is just the sheer scale of uh, courage and um, especially this demographic that seems to be at the forefront of this movement. It's very young kids, especially women who've been leading it, especially very young women who have been at the forefront of this and um, the, you know, courage and the inspiration of, you know, we're seeing children between the ages of 13 or 14 all the way to, you know, their mid twenties, very much encapsulating this uh, new generation. And um, yeah, it's, the bravery is really astounding. Just, you know, following the digital footprint of this generation, they're much more vocal, much more expressive and radical against, you know, envisioning a future that they want. And this coupled with the, you know, extreme brutality and impunity of the Islamic Republic has been just this very confusing, um, an emotional time of being inspired and being horrified and things definitely do seem different than other times we've seen protests in Iran. I mean, we're seeing new, you know, forms of repression, both digitally and both offline. Um, You know, I don't think we've ever seen such a prolonged period of protests in Iran. Um, probably not such a prolonged period since, uh, you know, the 1979 revolution. We had, you know, weeks of protest between December 2017 and January 2018. 
Um, but I think this is quite remarkable in the length of it. Um, and I mean, I can get into the digital rights aspect of it, but yeah, I just have that to say in terms of the horror and the inspiration of what's been happening for the past five weeks. Yeah, and no. we're gonna oh, go, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and we're gonna talk about the digital rights, of course, because yeah. it's such an important aspect and the way it plays out, or you know, how even digital rights are now being redefined through all this. But before we do that, Nima, your organization can do provides education and access to information and tech to vulnerable populations, right? Including um, Iranian activists. Uh, for our listeners who aren't so familiar with the digital threats Iranians face, can you give us an overview? And I know that this is a huge thing, but <laughs> if you can provide us a, a quick overview and then we can start connecting those dots, especially with the digital rights of Marsha. Uh, just yes, absolutely. Mentioned. Absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me here. Hi. Um, and I, I want to piggyback first on, on what Massa was saying that um, I, I, I think it was... Uh, um, you know, last year and the year before during the BLM protests that I heard this uh, uh, quote by uh, Asata Shakur that, that really shook me to my core is that when, when people were chanting, we have nothing to lose but our chains. And I think that is uh, very true and correct for people in Iran right now, that uh, the people that we are seeing uh, who are coming out, excuse me, who are coming out these days um, really have nothing to lose but, but their chains. Um, so that, that, that's, that's, a, I think a very significant part of it, um, especially because when we are looking at it, um, especially through the, through the perspective of, of digital rights and, and, um, you know, the, the, the field, uh, in, in which we are all active in, what I see is that Iranian people have been harmed by not just the Iranian regime, but also the Western world. Um, the way that they have been isolated and and uh, and and uh, you know being punished for being Iranian is not just uh, you know a product of of the Iranian regime and and their uh, crackdown on on their own people. It has been also uh, the product, the byproduct of of harsh uh, sanctions and and harsh uh, uh, treatment of the Western countries of of different countries. Um, to punish Iranian people, to isolate them for being born in that country. Um, so it's a very uh, uh, interesting situation from, from all these different angles that I hope that we get into. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's, that's always what I've observed as a, you know, and as an outsider as well, that it's coming from both sides. It's that you have, of course, the Iranian government putting forth all of these crackdowns. And then to add insult to injury, you have all of these tools that then become inaccessible because of that. So yeah, let's definitely come back to that. But Constantinos, I will throw it over to you because you look like you've got a follow up. <laughs> well, yes, I, I think I want to dive in right into this whole digital rights issue, right? I mean, let's crack it down. Currently, we, we have seen over the years digital rights being redefined in many different ways. And right now, we are seeing again the, the way digital rights are being expressed in Iran, within Iran, and the way we understand them outside of Iran. So can you tell us a little bit, when, you, when you're thinking about digital rights and, the, and what is happening right now in Iran, wh what are the, the things that you know, come to, you, to your mind and you, you want to see and you want people to know 
and how we can actually help in order to get to that place. Absolutely. I, I think... <clears throat> Absolutely. I think uh, the, the first and for uh, first and foremost, the, the most important thing that we need to do um, is to is to think about this uh, uh, in terms of digital inequity uh, that I think my friend Roya has, has coined this term. Um, uh, Roya and Sophie, one of the greatest researchers uh, in, in, sens- uh, in, in the field of censorship measurement. We have to we have to I think we have to look at Internet as a public infrastructure. We have to look at, um, we, we have to think about this, that, that what would have been done had Iran uh, cut off access to, for example, drinking water uh, to its, uh, its people? How would, it, how would we react to such a situation? How would, because, you know, just like the free, free flow of water, whenever the, the connections uh, are disrupted to the internet, um, a lot of people die. A lot of people, hundreds if not thousands die. In that dark, um, and and be- just because you know people lose their voice to to reach out to the to the to the outside world, I want us to think about. I want us to think about what would we do if it was the the I don't know the 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 people of Denmark, people of Sweden, people of of Switzerland, people of Portugal who have been uh, who whose access to the internet was cut off. How would we react to that situation, right? Because I feel like. The, the 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 core issue that we are dealing with with here uh, this been this has been going on for at least a decade um, you know all of us uh, have been active in this field for a decade now to 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 fight for internet freedom globally um, in different places but there I I, I sense that there is a still um, a, 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 okay if I want to put it quite honestly I think we need to decolonize the internet freedom space. We, are, we, are, we have this top to bottom um, perspective of, of wherever that internet disruptions are happening that, oh, they are, you know, that they are some, some, like, why aren't we talking about Kazakhstan? Why aren't we talking about all these different places where they don't have a voice, right? Iran is one of them. Iran is, is very strategically uh, positioned in terms of like the geopolitics. So it gets a lot more attention. But I want to see equality in for for all people who who need to be connected to the internet those who have uh, some ways to connect and those who haven't been able to connect to the internet at all um, and if we want to you know start looking at this as 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 digital rights for everyone we should first get on the same page that we are equal beings altogether mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And that actually brings me to the next thing that I wanted to ask um, Masa, which is, um, Masa, you wrote a, um, co-wrote a, an excellent guest essay for the New York Times, I just, I think a little less than a month ago, um, around big tech supporting Iranians. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. I mean, I, I won't try to explain this. I think you can do a much better job than I can. But I think it speaks to what Nima's saying, that um, there is kind of an unequal treatment, including from Silicon Valley. So I'd love to, I'd love to just, you know, for our listeners, um, yeah, we'll throw the link out to them as well. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, Nima made some great points, and you know, as um, someone working on Iran and as an Iranian, I do feel very privileged. I mean, I, I mean, I don't feel privileged because what's happening is terrible and it shouldn't be happening. But I do, you know, I've been working with 
folks from Ethiopia and like what was happening in Tigray, for example, and not nearly as much attention was happening with those that digital repression or those protests or that what was happening there. So, you know, in term Nima does make a point that um, we are getting a lot more attention and obviously some geopolitical factors are at play because of that. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't that we shouldn't try and, you know, make the situation better as people who are focused um, and have the expertise to work on this particular country. And I mean, what we tried to do in that um, New York Times essay, which uh, I co-wrote with some other brilliant researchers, advocates, uh, Kendra Serra and Afsana Rigo, um, I mean, basically, we you know, the digital side of things is just one layer of it and it happens to be our expertise. So we just thought we would work on the one thing that we could have power and voice on, which was how do we mobilize uh, companies that are, you know, crucial to how information and communication operate in Iran? How do we mobilize them to ensure that they are um, helping Iranians the most that they can? And, you know, one of the big things that we approached was the fact that you know, we had um, one level of erosion of the limitations to the internet, which was the loosening of um, tech sanctions. Um, but yet we haven't even seen uh, companies take advantage of that opportunity yet. Um, we are getting really glowing, almost like press statements being published in uh, elite newspapers in the US about, you know, the amazing things that Google has done to help Iranians. And um, you know, we wrote that essay a month ago and nothing has changed in terms of the services that they have yet to unblock for Iran. Um, but they are very much, um, you know, applauding themselves for creating, you know, one VPN, but still not really acknowledging the harm that has been done with, you know, over a decade of tech sanctions that has stopped, um, you know, Iranians Iranian technologists who did not want to buy into, you know, national infrastructures, um, like that hasn't been acknowledged, the harm that has been done in the past 10 years, you know, and Google is yet to make those services available. And so I'm, I'm specifically talking about, you know, Google cloud platforms um, and different elements to that that were blocked for Iranians. And so, you know, national companies really thrived in its absence. Um, and yeah, Nima, please jump in if you want to say something about sanctions. I, I see you very excited and wanting to. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, like, uh, I one of the things that I was really hoping to uh, discuss with you all today uh, was was the difficulties of doing censorship measurements uh, in in a country like Iran, where the majority of people are using mobile phones and uh, are relying on. Uh, you know, Android devices to uh, basically get access to the internet. Um, and most of these people don't even have a computer at home to, to, to want to have um, a, wi a home Wi-Fi network. So they, are, they, they, they solely rely on, on mobile data and, and uh, you know, measuring uh, the connectivity of mobile data because they uh, switch networks so often and, and because of so many different um, limitations is very difficult, uh, but censorship researchers, uh, like while we are we are you know scratching our heads to to figure out how to how to see if 
a particular uh, town is is losing access to its uh, mobile data, Google already has that information. Um, Android phones are uh, quite chatty when it comes to Google, and in in every single HTTP request, uh, there there is there is the user agent of of that. Uh, that request that Google basically can tell which networks uh, are 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 basically disappearing. Cloudflare, for example, is sharing that information on Cloudflare Radar, but Google hasn't, and it makes me wonder why. Um, the the kind of uh, the the uh, you know like the the kind of restrictions and limitations that they have set on on Iranian people go well beyond uh, the sanctions that the U.S. government has uh, has imposed. And we have we have seen that you know like to, to be challenged by uh, for example GitHub Microsoft uh, uh, was it last year or the year before where uh, they basically obtained a special license from OFAC to be able to provide um, services to all the Iranian users even before uh, this new relaxations of sanctions uh, uh, under GLD two was released um, so that shows us that if there is a will there is definitely a way. Uh, but we haven't seen that will from from the big tech companies uh, like Google, and it makes me wonder why. Especially since they've been, as Massa mentioned, uh, they've been getting a lot of PR. They've been talking about how great their tool that they don't even provide the uh, like they they are glorifying this VPN service that they have, and it's great. It, Outline is what is one of the one of the uh, smartest way to bypass censorship, but. Google is not paying for the servers. The people who are running the service for their friends and families are paying for the servers. Google has just put the application out there and is just getting the PR. I wonder why. I wonder why. Excuse me. I wonder why they are not allocating uh, uh, more resources. They have near infinite computing power in their data centers in comparison to some someone like uh, you know a, a very tiny organization like Can Do can provide. Um, we are. We are already, you know, like having our, our uh, like thousands of dollars AWS bills, and and we have to shut down different projects because we don't have access to that resource to the resources that they do, and uh, at such a crucial at, at such a critical time like this, like they, it like they they aren't really providing any of that. Not just that, but also Google Cloud is so restrictive. Uh, that even if you are, let's say you are a num- you are a human rights organization, you are a news organization, you are uh, some organization that is doing some really really good stuff for the world, and you are I don't know somewhere in the world uh, that that has uh, you know in Europe or or in, in in the U.S. where you don't have to worry too much about these kind of restrictions, right? And you have hosted your service on Google Cloud, for example, Iranian users. Even if your website or service is not blocked by the Iranian regime, Iranian users are not going to be able to access it because Google blocks all the Iranian users altogether from its platform. It's obnoxious. And uh, with these sanctions being lifted, we still haven't seen um, a major shift in terms of Google uh, policies, in terms of giving access to Iranian users. They have claim to be working on it under Twitter. They have gotten their PR, but um, I don't see anything uh, tangible from them yet. I do I do really, this is kind of off topic, but I do enjoy how we have very 
big technology companies that really dominate the internet sphere, like Google and Meta. But Meta, this was a point that someone at Google actually pointed out to me, that Meta has really bad PR and Google has really good PR. Oh, yeah. There's no understanding between the differentiation, why between the two. Like, Meta is being dragged through the mud, and I think Google right now has a lot more to answer for. Oh, yeah, YouTube never comes up in any of the conversations around content moderation, which I think Evelyn Duick points out regularly on Twitter. But, like, how is it that they manage to evade... And and I think you're absolutely right. They have really good PR and Meta just still has bros doing their PR. (laughs) Which is shocking, by the way. How Meta, right? What what they've been through. But I think that, you know, Nima, you're raising a very interesting point and something that has always been at the back of my head. And I'm sort of not saying it because I'm I'm, I'm a little bit, you know... my thoughts are not very clear and I'm a little <laughs> bit scared as to how people might react. But I've always used to say within friends and, uh, and safe spaces that, you know, these big technology companies are part of foreign policy, whether they like it or not, whether they... Oh, they, they absolutely are. They are and exactly. So here we are having a very clear case of that. And frankly, you know, I didn't know any of that. Uh, and... If Google is doing that, then there is a problem, especially if they have said that they, they're going to do it. What about Meta? Where is Meta in all this? And how, and, and excuse my ignorance, how popular is Facebook and Instagram um, within Iran? And how does it facilitate what is happening right now? doesn't facilitate within an environment, we have to say, where everything is shut down, Right. All networks are shut down. The Iranian government is really cracking down uh, on any possible means of communication. Yeah, so, I mean, Meta has been very important in Iran. And so um, if, you're, if you want me to give a historical perspective on the platforms, please you know, do. Telegram. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, please. Yeah, I have spent a lot of time uh, talking about this, but Telegram used to be very big and central. I know Nima hates Telegram, but um, I mean, I'm not a particular fan, but it was at one point, you know, called the Internet and Iran for a period of time between 2015 um, to 2018 when it was censored. Um, And so uh, obviously Telegram is run by uh, Pavel Durov um, and Russian in exile in the United Arab Emirates now. Um, and so it had a particular role, especially during protests that happened during 2017 and 2018, which I think ultimately contributed to it being censored in 2018, um, in the aftermath of its censorship, um, Instagram and WhatsApp have really come to replace Telegram. So WhatsApp is the most used application in Iran. Uh, Instagram is the second most used application, um, most popular social media. So it's been, this company has been very crucial for information and communication in Iran. Um, And, you know, it's been over, um, it's been almost two years, I think, that we've been dealing with issues of content moderation on Instagram, as it has been playing such a crucial role in Iran and in terms of how its policies um, align with, um, you know, particular kinds of expression inside Iran. And so, Um, I mean, before I get into bashing Meta and its policies, I have to give them credit where it's due, which is um, out of all the companies that I've ever worked with, um, and you guys can probably um, tell me if this is the same experience for you, 
they have the most outreach and the most and the biggest human rights teams that are willing to interface with civil society and researchers. So um, they have been very open and they have been, um, you know, open to hearing. I don't know if they've necessarily listened, but they do. They do. They they do. I guess hear us sometimes. Um, so they uh, have been open to these criticisms and these problems. And I mean, one big thing and one thing that I had been working on in terms of submitting to the oversight board was the issue of their policy of um, incitement to violence, which has been a massive issue because, you know, it's been 40 years of trauma that Iranians have been living under with the Islamic Republic. And so there are very, very strong, heavy feelings towards the regime. Um, And we see these very strong feelings, often violent feelings towards the regime, um, in protest slogans, in what people want to express and post online. And so the one thing that we see that people want to write, they want to chant is Mag Bar Khamenei or death to Khamenei. And so this has become a very big contentious point. Um, you know, we went all the way back to 2021. We had protests, water protests in Khuzestan. And this was, I think, um, we documented over just through our own networks and who reached out to us at Article 19. We documented over 300 instances of takedowns related to the Khuzestan protests by Iranians, um, mainly on Instagram. And so, uh, you know, it was leaked by Vice in 2021 that Meta decided to give an exception for two weeks so Iranians could say death to Khamenei during the Khuzestan protests and then they would remove it. Um, And then obviously, you know, exceptions are a very controversial topic when it comes to Meta. Um, They don't obviously give exceptions everywhere. So Iran was one of those privileged countries that got an exception. We have not seen, you know, the, the same kind of outreach given to Palestinians who want to talk about their oppressors. The only other time that we did see these exceptions was in Ukraine in the context of the Russian invasion. And of course, this was a massive deal, much bigger than the exception for death to Khamenei. Um, This was leaked. Um, You know, it was kind of interpreted as Meta is allowing Ukrainians to just like be xenophobic towards Russians. The policy was a bit more complicated and specific than obviously all Russians. It was, you know, death to any Russian who was involved in the Ukrainian invasion. But this was massive and it led to most of Meta's platforms being blocked in Russia. So it was had massive implications. Um, And so they decided not to give that exception anymore to Iran. And so there's a lot of debate now. And obviously this this policy has been coupled with some conspiracies, some reports that, you know, content moderators that are hired by Meta are, um, you know, attached or biased towards the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, And so there has been a lot of I mean, there's obviously been a lot of mistakes. There's been a lot of takedowns according to this policy as well. But it has been interpreted as, you know, Meta is on the side of the Islamic Republic of Iran. And I mean, one of my favorite posts that actually came out during this last month in much lighter news that came down was um, an Iranian graphic designer basically created a Vogue cover and put Mark Zuckerberg on the cover with a like an Ayatollah's turban, and they mm-hmm. called it him Ayatollah Mark. 
And this was a viral. This was a viral. So strange. But also, like, really complimentary towards him because Iranians think he's on the level of being a fashion icon on the cover of Vogue. So, I mean, it's like when in Egypt, when people were literally naming, I mean, there was a child named Facebook back around 2011. So, highest compliments to them, I guess. Yeah, so there's there's a lot of this, um, there's a lot of distrust towards Meta by, you know, a lot of protesters, a lot of activists who think they're being censored actively. I mean, my look into it indicates that it's a bit more complicated. Obviously, Meta could be doing much more, I think. I mean, they had this whole thing with WhatsApp. So all these Iranian numbers, WhatsApp was being censored by Iran. And in the aftermath, we found, I mean, I saw it with my own eyes with friends with, you know, the plus nine, eight number, the Iranian uh, area codes sitting next to me right after uh, WhatsApp was blocked in Iran. And it was taking like over a minute for their messages to like send or like receive. So they were, so the Iranian area code was experiencing massive disruptions globally. And so Iranians thought that Meta was, you know, trying to help the censorship of WhatsApp by attacking all Iranian numbers. And so, I mean, there still hasn't been a transparent answer on what happened. They, of course, have denied that they were doing anything. Um, There was some sort of technical difficulty, I think, in essence, that occurred. Because even, like, however evil or bad I think Meta is, I don't think they actually would have (laughs) wanted to do that. But they haven't obviously transparently explained to Iranians, you know, something happened, there is a glitch. And so there is a lot of this distrust. They think, you know, Meta is actively trying to censor them. Um, They're trying to, you know, side with the Islamic Republic because of all of these different kind of events and things that have been happening. And so I know Jillian and I have (laughs) spoken about this death to Khamenei um, policy. I mean, maybe Nima has some thoughts on this because I know you've seen it and people have reported it to you as well. Yeah. And I also just wanted to throw out Nima and then I'll throw it to you that there is, um, an oversight board. Maybe, I don't know if this will go up before that closes, but there's an oversight board, um, case related to Iran that was just announced that is open to public comment at the moment. It closed, um, I think the day before yesterday, but. Did it? Oh, okay. It looks like it's still open. I could be wrong. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. I- <laughs> I had campaigned and advocated for them to open it much mm. longer because, first of all, I mean, I think Konstantinos uh, tweeted this, which was the internet is disrupted and blocked. So if Iranians want to comment, how are they going to do it during this period? Yeah, yeah. I just thought it was ridiculous that they wanted to, st- to stick to their strict deadlines when there is obviously an extraordinary situation here and the people that you want to hear do not have access to the internet. It just didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And even, I mean, the two of you who are working really hard on a number of different fronts at the moment, like I imagine, and this is something that I wanted to ask you about as well, that that Massa brought up to us too, um, is just the, you know, if you want to talk about it, like, what is it, you know, what is it like right now working on this? How is it for your communities? How is it for, you know, the people that you're working with? I mean, I know, you know, I think our listeners, it would be helpful for people to hear that. Um, if I can add a little bit, if I can add a little bit, like piggyback again on on Massa's point, um, I'm I'm glad that she's been having some good experience with Meta. My experience with them has always been adversarial, um, more or less, and uh, the, you know sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. 
relative. So I was relative. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've got mixed feelings too. I think you all know. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I, I think I think uh, uh, the the great keyword that uh, uh, she used was transparency. Uh, the way of which that uh, Meta is uh, uh, operating is very opaque. Very very politicized and uh, that it, it lacks heavy transparency. He, it, it heavily lacks transparency. Uh, so, and uh, like she uh, mentioned uh, the, the situation with Ukraine, uh, Ukraine and, and Iran. And, and I wanted to uh, uh, point out, like uh, talk about like that a little bit about why these two countries, these two countries that suddenly become the center of attention for the, for the American politics and all of, all of a sudden, Meta is is giving them uh, special treatment, right? And and I want to talk a little bit about not just these tech companies that are are um, acting in an inconsistent way uh, with their users uh, around the world that that we don't we don't see that that level of attention being given to Palestinian users, for example, despite all of that happening that that has been documented and the and the board of oversight has already admitted to it that how how badly screwed that up but we still don't see the needle moving much um on that front and and i want to and i want to point out uh this this other part of the uh situation that currently uh when it comes to internet freedom when i when i talk about decolonizing the internet freedom i'm not talking about just uh, uh, you know, like the, the the tech aspect of it, but also the funding aspect of it. Who are the people behind it that are pushing the pushing for a change? Right? When when you if as a nonprofit organization, uh, if we want to work on internet freedom, the most, the loudest and the most influential funder right now is the U.S. State Department. That should not be the case. Uh, uh, U.S. State Department is the policy machine of the of the United States. Uh, Quite often than not, uh, like it's been used, uh, uh, you know, like we, we remember Iraq, we remember uh, the different different cases where where State Department is being used to follow uh, uh, some really messed up politics of the U.S. politicians uh, when it comes to other countries, especially countries in the Middle East. Uh, so I would really love for U.S. State Department if they like I they they have funded some some good tools as well. They have like but but it lacks. Heavy, it, it heavily again lacks transparency, and I would love for them to open up their funding calls. Right, there is no need for that to be secretive. Secretive, uh, there is like they could follow the the model of, for example, uh, OTF, Open Technology Fund, where uh, where where they openly talk about which projects are they funding, how are they funding it, what is the amount. Uh, like there, there is there is an advisory committee uh, from the community that is uh, constantly monitoring the the activity of of these grantees, and uh, everything happens in the open. Also, also uh, OTF is a nonprofit organization uh, that that you know. So when you want to work on, uh, for example, internet freedom, you don't have to necessarily go in contract with uh, a government. Uh, why should you? Uh, and uh, so I, I, I have been, uh, uh, I have had uh, some, some great people at the, at the State Department who are actually uh, uh, very um, interested in, 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 in this cause and, and are interested to actually uh, uh, help the people on the ground um, away from all these 
uh, weird policies that are being pushed from from uh, top to bottom, uh, namely the the uh, U.S. maximum pressure policy that that we saw during the Trump administration that was essentially kicking off all the Iranian users from all the international platforms, forcing them to move their servers inside the country, essentially helping the Iranian government and the Iranian regime uh, to you know, to to decrease the collateral damage of an internet shutdown. Uh, right now, if the like Iran has been implementing this this uh, online curfew, um, essentially with with minimal damage to their economy in in, ter- in inside the country. Why? Because most of the services that that uh, users rely on have their servers inside the country right now, and um, they are not experiencing an outage uh, outage because you know because they were kicked out of AWS they were kicked out of all the de- they were kicked out of digital ocean they were kicked out of all the different platforms and uh, not only that but also like if if we want to work on something that uh, you know expands the access of the Iranian users to the free and open web, we have very limited choices if we don't want to go to the U.S. State Department uh, for money, and that should be that should change. Uh, the 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 way of which that we go about designing this this uh, tools and and systems and infrastructure for for people to rely on to bypass censorship. Again, the 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 organizations who are working on these issues should be talking constantly, if not. A, ha, getting having bringing bringing in all the Iranian users, all the censored users from Kazakhstan, from 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 Russia, from China, from all these different places to to be in the leadership positions of of where this money is going, where, where when when the agenda is being set on on how you want to define funding for internet freedom, that's where you need to have the input and and the role like the active role of the people who are actually. You know, uh, uh, subject to all of these uh, these uh, these restrictions, to have a voice there. But more often than not, we uh, see people, um, often white people from Western countries who have never really experienced censorship, uh, to be in the position of defining these funding mechanisms. We see uh, the same kind of people, same same demographic, uh, uh, usually able-bodied, able, you know, like like all their, their lives. Have been privileged to uh, uh, to 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 work on these technologies and define these technologies. That is not going to uh, uh, be sustainable. We've been doing it doing this for a decade, and we are seeing very little, uh, uh, you know, progress on that front. And we see a lot of progress in terms of like the the governments that want to repress repress people, um, and they just uh, essentially are are uh, implementing harsher uh, restriction on the web. And we don't seem to have a good response on this side, especially that even 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 after you know that in in 2009 when when we uh, experienced that that near total internet shutdown in Iran, that 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 was supposed to 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 be ringing like we were supposed to be ringing all the bells, and even from then we haven't been able to figure out how to even share data within the internet freedom community to understand. How the sensors are blocking the web uh, inside the inside the inside the country yeah. like Iran right now, and that is that that honestly needs to change. 
And you have been raising so many issues from, you know, rightful and meaningful participation to actually internet shutdowns that unfortunately are only increasing instead of decreasing mm-hmm. and governments are becoming much more savvy in the way they they impose them. I, I just actually, last week, I was reading that the new tele- India telecoms bill is, is literally legitimizing now internet shutdowns on the basis of national security. So, but we're close to time and, and we have a question that we always ask our, our, our guests. But before we get to that, I really do want do not want to, to, to leave this conversation without asking, and I know it's a huge question, but what can we do? Is there anything that users that are interested in and following this from afar can do? I know that Signal, I've been seeing Signal is, is you know, providing some tools in terms of technology for, for, for Iranian people. I don't know whether that's enough or even helpful at all. I see you you know, not nodding negatively, uh, Nima. Uh, but what can we do? Uh, and it doesn't uh, have to be technology. Universe. I mean, how can yes. how can people support the movement? How can they support you, etc.? I think the first step is to educate every single person who is interested on this uh, on this issue. Uh, should take the take the initiative to educate themselves. Just like start by asking questions. Any questions? It, like as soon as you start questions, as as soon as you start asking questions, things come up that that need to be responded to, and uh, you soon realize that not a lot of these questions are being responded to. Uh, Signal is is a good example. Signal is amazing. I I use it on a on a regular basis, daily basis. It has uh, to some extent uh, replaced my emails. But when we like, I I've been in in conversation with Signal since 2016 about Signal being blocked in Iran, and the Signal proxy was not the answer. Signal pro- proxy is uh, easily. Uh, fingerprinted, and it was a it was a very quick hack that Moxie came up with. And um, I'm honestly sad that uh, Signals is still, uh, you know, getting PR about it, whereas it's not the most effective, um, you know, uh, answer to the uh, situation right now. Um, I will stop here and leave it to Massa. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't know if Nima agrees with me, but I really think the most important thing right now um, is for there to be some sort of accountability because, you know, we're talking mm. about technology and digital rights, but, you know, we don't even know the scale of deaths that are happening. Mm-hmm. Everything we're hearing, we're verifying, you know, over 240 deaths, but everything we're hearing, you know, there's hundreds more that are unaccounted for. They've killed 23 children. We, we A few days oh. ago, we learned that they attacked another school f- full of little girls and they killed one of those girls. I mean, I don't even know how to, how like to even envision the facts that are coming out of my Mm. mouth right now in terms of the deaths and the brutality that's happening. And so the very first thing that I want is, you know, for, for people in their countries, wherever, you know, your listeners are, I'm, I'm talking to a, a conference in Pakistan this weekend, because I know Pakistan always votes no at the UN against human rights resolutions on Iran. Um, and, you know, the mandate for the special rapporteur for human rights in Iran. Mm. So I think it's really important that, you know, everyone in all their countries, I mean, 
like Nima said, I would love this to be equally applied to, but I'm working on Iran and I'm advocating on Iran. And so I want people to push for the special mechanism at the UN to investigate what is happening in Iran in the same way that, you know, the world came together and pushed for the investigation in Myanmar. I want there to be international pressure for um, this system to stop enacting such severe uh, digital repression from such severe uh, internet disruptions that, you know, allows and facilitates these deaths on the ground. So I think that's really the most important thing that I, I, I couldn't think of something more important than putting pressure on this government from stopping the murder of innocent children. Like I, I cannot, um, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say about that and the horror that it is we're witnessing every day. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for saying it. I think it's really good for our listeners, even though this is, you know, usually we're, we're more focused on the internet, but I think with this subject and I think with all of these subjects, um, there's a reason we call it the internet of humans. So thank you both um, for saying everything so clearly for our listeners to understand better. Um, and now we are going to segue somewhat abruptly to our final and slightly more positive question. Um, so everyone shake your heads out. Um <laughs> This is our favorite question, but I think, you know, you can use it to tell whatever kind of story you like. Um, so each of you, uh, our question is, what is your favorite internet and human moment? Um, and it can be something from any time in your life or a story that you know of, um, Iran or otherwise. Oh, I can go. Um, my, my moment of inspiration of internet was uh, around the end of 2009, uh, when uh, we were we were still engaged with what was going on in in uh, in you know in Iran uh, the, around the green movement, and then we we saw the uh, the Arab Spring starting, and uh, the 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 most endearing part for me was when uh, the activists inside all these different Arab countries reached out, and they were like, "Okay, we are experiencing the same things that you have been experiencing within the past couple of months." Give us like let's let's exchange notes on how to deal with this restrictions, especially on the internet. And it was such a such a such a very inspiring uh, moment to uh, to have hope a little bit that that despite all the all the different challenges, uh, especially in the geopolitics, especially in Iran, where you know I, I grew up there and. Uh, uh, the the Iranian regime, uh, the all the propaganda from from all the different governments in that region is trying to divide people uh, from one another and and to to increase hate between them and like all of a sudden with uh, the the connection between green movement and Arab Spring brought us all together in a, in, a, in a way that I hadn't seen before and that that warmth still fuels me to uh, take another step and 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 uh, remain in this field I love that it's wonderful wonderful. Massa? Oh, I don't I don't know how I can come and top that like thoughtful and profound <laughs> sentiment. I was gonna come out with something very silly. That's okay about- too. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. It's allowed. Yeah. Last last week we had a love story, a teenage love story. So exactly. anything goes for this this question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I was just going to say that I had a, a favorite um, rock band when I was a teenager. I was like 14 or 15 and I was obsessed with 
this band and I found the lead singer of the band on Twitter and he followed me back <laughs> and we ended up DMing and he like <laughs> invited me to his concerts and gave me backstage passes. And that was just through Twitter. Oh, so. That was, is amazing. <laughs> nice. I, I love that. Yeah. Will you share the yeah. band or, or is it a secret? <laughs> yeah, I, do, I, I mean, it, the band is Franz Ferdinand. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely love like I was obsessed with them I would line up would line up like three four hours beforehand to go and be at the very front of the concert absolutely obsessed with the lead singer and then he followed me back and then I just randomly messaged him I was like oh I'm so excited about your new album and he was like do you want tickets to my concert and backstage passes that is so cool which, by the way, I, and I have to say that because, you know, I mean, it's Franz Ferdinand. So, you know, they're Glasgow and I used to be in Glasgow for many oh, years. Yeah. And the lead singer is Greek. Well, half Greek. Oh, but still. Yeah. I love Alex it. Alex Capranos. Yep. See, and this so is why we ask this go. question because the internet, you know, for all of its, all the, the shit that we talk about it, it does still bring people together, whether it's for the band yes. or bringing people together across different movements. So thank you both so much. Thank you so, so <laughs> very much for being honest and open to have this conversation. Yes. We really do appreciate it. It was thank you. really a yeah. pleasure having you. Thank you for thank having you. us. All right.